the part in the creed where we are looking at the church. And I'm excited because I don't have to preach on it. It's good news, right? <laughs> I get a break from my voice during the summer, and you get a break from my voice this summer. The reason being that my good friend, Dave Wright, has come to preach to us today. Now, people often stop and ask me, they say, Jonathan, how did you end up in the States? And besides the Lord, it's really all down to this man, Dave Wright. Uh, Dave, I met about 20 years ago in England. We were doing youth ministry in a diocese called the Diocese of Chester, just outside of Liverpool in England. And uh, Dave told me around about 2001, I guess it was, around about Easter, he said, hey, Jonathan, I'm heading to the States. He's from the States. He said, I'm heading back. I'm going to be the youth coordinator for this place called South Carolina, Diocese of South Carolina. I thought, okay, sounds good. Uh, And Dave said, if you ever want a position, just let me know. I'd love for you to come out there and maybe work out there. And I thought, yeah, thanks, Dave, sure thing. And thought, no way, I'm going to the States. Come on, (laughs) let's stay in England. And uh, and then six months later, Dave actually emailed me. And he said, there's this this church on this place called Sullivan's Island, just outside of Charleston. It's called Holy Cross. They're looking for a youth pastor. And I think that you might be the person uh, who's called to be there. I thought, okay, that's interesting. I just told my boss that maybe it was time for me to move on and go do something else. So I started investigating it. And lo and behold, By Easter of 2002, I was hired and I was on my way to Holy Cross. So I'm very grateful to Dave because of that. Obviously, I'm here today. I met my wife, Melissa. I have three wonderful children. So Dave, no pressure, but you did a great job. Thank you. (laughs) Keep it coming. Now, if you're wondering what Dave does, well, he's still the coordinator for student ministries. He's been here since 2001. Like, I doubt there are any coordinators for student ministries who've been doing it longer than Dave, probably in the world in Anglicanism. And he's a vision keeper. His work revolves around assisting, training, mentoring, and providing pastoral care to youth ministers and leaders. Dave consults with churches seeking to develop student ministries and has a keen interest to see some of our congregations develop campus ministries as well for college students and for many to enhance their evangelism to children. He also oversees diocesan youth events, which our own students go on, and represents the interests of the next generation on various boards and committees in the diocese. Dave's married to Jane, who is here today, which is fantastic. They have three young adult children, two of whom are here today, and a grandchild now, I believe, and they worship at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul downtown, my former church right there. I'd like to call Dave up, and I want to pray for him, and then he's going to preach God's word to us. Come on up, Dave. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this man, Dave. I want to thank you for the part he's played in my life, but also in the life of so many others across the world, whether uh, in the northern parts of the states, whether in the United Kingdom as a youth pastor, whether here as a coordinator for student ministries, Lord. I'm so grateful for him and his ministry, and I pray your blessing upon him, Lord. Come fill him with your spirit, Lord, as he continues to seek to do this well and to raise up young people who know you. And Lord, would you bless him now? Would you speak through him? Would you come and minister us, minister to us by your spirit so that we might hear what you have to say through your word? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, it's funny, I was looking back at, at, over the years and reflecting on the fact that, uh, that I had reached out to Jonathan and told him about Holy Cross after I met with uh, John Burwell, who told me that his words were, um, I want the best youth minister in America. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I just thought it was funny as I prayed about that and Jonathan's face just kept coming to my mind, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to give John Burwell the best youth minister in America. Um, but we went a little bit beyond that. And um, 
And it was, it was exciting years later to see uh, John, uh, Jonathan bring over Johnny. And, um, and we've had some excellent youth ministers in this diocese with, between uh, several different Englishmen um, as well. Um, and then Jonathan, a number of years ago, up and followed a call to become ordained, and I didn't know if I wanted to talk to him again, because uh, he was abandoning youth ministry. Um, but of course, being married to Melissa, he wasn't really truly abandoning youth ministry. And then uh, a year or so ago, I asked him to be the chair of the Department of Student Ministries, and uh, which he is now. And in some ways, he's now my supervisor, in a way. <laughs> so that's kind of a strange thing, and I feel like I'm almost like I'm preaching in front of my boss. Not quite, because the bishop is actually my boss. Anyway, uh, since I don't think I've heard it said, let me be the, if maybe the first to say this morning, for those of you to whom this is relevant, happy Father's Day. Um, it, this week, I have had the joy of a major distraction in my household in that of a nearly two-year-old grandson, and um, we're expecting another one as well in, um, in November, which will, be, which will be fun, but I had a lot of fun playing with my grandson instead of sermon writing this week, so um, sorry. <laughs> this morning in the sermon series, we're focused on the church, as the video showed us. The portion of the creed in, the, in mind this morning is, uh, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I want to focus first this morning on the reading from Acts, just briefly, and then uh, we want to learn from that what was the early church like, and what is, how does that sort of apply to the church today, and then I want to look more specifically at the line in the creed, specifically because there's four marks of the church that we find there, and they're not as simple as they might seem on the surface. So taking a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, as Luke writes the Acts of the Apostles, he's deliberate in pointing out the significant actions and reactions in the earliest days of the church. What we ought to notice in the reading is that these folks were different from the world. They had a common purpose and an an identity that shaped their daily lives. It was different to any other religious community in Jerusalem or on the earth, probably. Tim Keller, author and pastor, tells us that the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. The pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. A sharp contrast. That's a a, a radical distinction. Luke summarizes four distinguishing features in the early church. They devoted themselves to apostolic teaching, teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These give us a pattern as to how the the church ought to be. It sets up priorities for the church um, from the earliest inception. So let's take a look at each of those four. The apostles' teaching was the only way that new believers had the teaching of Jesus shared with them and explained to them um, before it was actually written in the New Testament. 
Luke does not tell us exactly what that teaching was, but it likely emphasized Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as Lord. We can tell this by looking at the preaching that we find in the passage preceding it and throughout the book of Acts. One aspect of the early church that Luke highlights in Acts is the proclamation of the gospel. It only makes sense that the apostles' teaching would be focused on how and why the gospel changes everything. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching means submitting to the authority of scriptures because it's the apostles' teaching that we have now in the New Testament. The Bible is central to the life of believers and the life of the church. When I was a college student, I was struggling to find good Bible teaching. And I stumbled upon expository Bible teaching on the radio. And from there on, in my four years of college, every Monday through Friday, I spent at least 30 minutes in my room listening to one or two great preachers working their way through books of the Bible. As a young Christian, this fed me, and it left me with a hunger for solid teaching that has never left me. We need to be taught from the scriptures. It's how we grow. Fellowship. The Greek word koinonia, which is translated as fellowship, only appears once in Luke's writing, though Paul uses it often. Its basic idea is sharing, but it's also used to denote intimacy and fellowship. The same word koinonia is used for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit when we say the grace in 2 Corinthians 13. And koinonia is translated as participation in the blood and body of Christ during communion. The various occurrences of koinonia in the New Testament suggest that the church used this word to mean the common identity and relationship with Jesus that is shared by believers. Verses 43 to 47 describe what this fellowship was like. It's odd then that the word fellowship has so often come to mean small talk over something to nibble on and to drink. To say that people were devoted to coffee and cookies after worship is really missing the point of verse 42. The sharing they were devoted to was radical and life-changing. Perhaps the most relevant use of the word for us, the, the word fellowship that we might relate to, is in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where they established the fellowship of the ring and several people are, are devoting themselves to making sure Frodo gets to his destination and the ring gets destroyed. One way that we devote ourselves to fellowship in the church today is by participating in what my, ch my church calls community groups or Holy Cross calls life groups. In these, there is an intimacy, a sharing of life with all of its joys and its burdens it's where relationships tend to run deeper. These, these groups are a microcosm of the church in that they also study scripture and pray together. If you've not been a part of a life group, I encourage you to give it a try. That's fellowship, the breaking of the bread. This could refer to Holy Communion being celebrated, or it simply means they ate food together. I've wrestled with this over the years. Some people argue that verse 42 indicates the Lord's Supper, and the reference to breaking bread in verse 46 is about enjoying a meal together. 
Others see the passage as just referring to they had food together. Either way, there's two things that we know for sure. They ate together regularly, and at some point they celebrated Holy Communion together. When they came together, they were worshiping. They worshiped the Lord, and that alone is sufficient to indicate to us that they took communion together. Being devoted to worship is one of the essentials of growing in Christ. It gives us the opportunity to offer God praise and thanksgiving for all he's done in our lives. Yet we should not overlook the significance of them sharing food together. It's a very human thing to enjoy meals with others. It's something we enjoy regularly with family and friends. And in many senses, as Christians, we are both family and friends. Fellowship around food was important to the early church, and it is a blessing to the church still today. Prayer. Prayer might refer to uh, prayer during the set times of prayer in the temple or in the synagogue, as well as praying with other believers. Prayer is another aspect of the early church that Luke draws major attention to. We see a pattern in Acts of prayer followed by proclamation and going back to prayer regularly. Read Acts chapter 4 to see this played out. Prayer is one of the essentials of the Christian faith and is our source of power in the church. Years ago, when I moved my family to England, where I served a, a vibrant church as their first youth minister and then went on to meet Jonathan Bennett, what really impressed me was their devotion to prayer. This particular congregation was so committed to regular prayer and lots and lots and lots of prayer. Every Wednesday night, sorry, every other week on Wednesday night, there was a prayer meeting where about one quarter of the congregation, and it wasn't a small church, a quarter of the congregation spent an hour praying together. They prayed for the needs of the church. They prayed for the needs of the community. They prayed for opportunities for the gospel to be shared. They prayed for the needs of one another. They prayed for lots and lots of different things. I discovered when I got there, they, they had been praying for the arrival of a youth minister for actually about two years before I showed up. Prior to that, I valued prayer and I believed in prayer, but my experience there at that church was profound in terms of seeing what the power of prayer is all about. I witnessed that power beyond anything I'd ever seen before. Saw obstacles fall down like, like they were nothing. Things that most people would say, oh, that's never going to happen. And people would pray about it, and it would happen, and we'd all be stunned and go, well, that's God. Every meeting or gathering of people in that church was saturated in prayer. Now, the statement in the Nicene Creed is, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. There's four truth statements to be explored here. They are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. I'm going to need to explore the church word because that's what, that's what we're describing here with these four. Each of these are truth statements about the nature of the church. So we'll go through them. The church is one. The Apostle Paul teaches that the church is one body in Christ with one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Yet we see that Jesus prayed for the unity of believers in John 17. Jesus anticipated, and Paul in several of his epistles addressed disunity 
as a problem in the church. The reality is that the church is both one and needing to seek oneness, needing to seek unity. It's unified in Christ spiritually, but it needs to speak, seek unity humanly. We're called to love one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to build one another up. All of this is to be done for the glory of God. What do we make then of the reality today that there are so many different denominations of Christian churches? I think two ideas help us understand this and, and help us understand how to think about the church as, as one. First, we still see a true oneness or unity of the church. Sorry, we will see a true oneness or unity in the church when Jesus returns. There's a future true real oneness that we'll, that we'll all be able to see very clearly. At that point, the one church, one true church will reunite to worship the Lord. Until then, we have a reality that theologian John Calvin describes as the church visible and the church invisible. The visible church exists in many expressions. We have Anglicans, we have Baptists, we have Methodists, we have Presbyterians, we have lots of different denominations and non-denominations, community churches, megachurches, uh, multi-site churches, it goes on and on and on. However, the church invisible consists of all who are truly in relationship with Christ, past, present, and future. The church invisible is the collection of all true believers from all the different denominations. That's the church that we will clearly see on the last day. We get glimpses of the oneness or unity of the church periodically in our lives. When I took my youth group years ago to a, a national conference in Washington, DC, we were surrounded by 20,000 young Christians from all sorts of denominations. We were all worshiping the Lord together and growing in our understanding of his call on our lives. It was a peek into the future reality of the ch of that the church is one. Another example that comes to mind, we saw after the Emmanuel AME tragedy a few years ago, a unity amongst churches in Charleston that really was a profound testimony. Christians that normally did not interact were praying together and singing hymns and praises. The world around us was expecting to see protests and maybe even riots in the streets. All the major news outlets sent people into Charleston looking for that and discovered Christians were united in prayer and praise. That's powerful. Absolutely powerful testimony that glorified God, the oneness of the church. The church is holy. This is similarly complex to the oneness of the church. We, we tend to equate holiness with moral perfection. So how can we say that the church is holy when the church is the people and the people are imperfect? In the moral sense, the church is holy because it will one day be purified. Until then, the church is as sinful as its members and even, dare I say, perhaps its leaders. However, moral perfection is only one way of looking at the word holy. 
In the Bible, its larger meaning is to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart for and dedicated to the service of the Lord. We see in the Old Testament that God set apart himself a people, the nation of Israel. Israel was not only to be God's chosen people, they were to be a blessing to the world around them. God made a covenant with his people, which was fulfilled in the person of Christ. In the New Testament, we see Jesus ushers in a new covenant that goes beyond the Jewish people to include all those who would follow him. When we speak of the church being holy, we do so because the one who called us out to be different in the world is, namely God, is holy in every sense of the word. To say that we are a holy people primarily means that we are set apart and dedicated to God. Moral purity is not yet, but dedication to the Lord is now. And the fact that the church is holy includes the idea that God intends the church to be a blessing to the world. The church is Catholic. This is perhaps the most confusing word that we're looking at today. It's not difficult, though. We have in modern times used the word Catholic as sort of a shorthand, a shorter way of referring to the Roman Catholic Church. This is not what, what was meant when the creed was written. Because when the creed was written, there weren't Protestants and Catholics. There was just the church. So what does Catholic mean? The simple definition is universal. It's the universal church. So some Protestant denominations, not wanting to be confused with Roman Catholics, actually when they say the creed, they swap out the word Catholic with the word universal. I've honestly, I've met people who thought that they were worshiping in a Catholic church because they, said the, they were in places that said the creed and said one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And they just assumed, I guess I'm in a Roman Catholic church. And that wasn't the case. What does it mean that the church is universal? This one's easy. It is the church throughout the known world. The church throughout the known world. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in that all nations of the world would be blessed. Holy Cross is a, just a local gathering of the universal church. Think about it maybe this way. Our denomination consists of just over a thousand churches in North America. That's the, the Anglican Church in North America. Just over a thousand in, in the, on the continent here. Yet our Anglican brothers and sisters in Africa number in the millions. I think Nigeria has 17 million Anglicans. Those, those are some stunning sort of numbers. I don't know the numbers of congregations. But when you think about the church universal, it includes not just Anglicans, but all who confess as fellow believers um, that Jesus is Lord. It's, it's related to the idea that the, of the church invisible in that the universal or Catholic church is massive and who all is included, we don't fully know yet. We'll see it one day that church universal, but it's there. The church is apostolic. Our, our reading in Acts 2, we saw that the early church <clears throat> was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The meaning of the word apostolic in the creed is simply that the church originated with the apostles. There's a direct link between the church today 
and the apostles. It raises the question, I suppose, what is an apostle? Simply, an apostle is someone who was commissioned by Christ with the task of bringing the good news of the kingdom. It's someone who is a witness to the risen Christ or to whom Christ revealed himself as risen. So basically, we're talking about 12 apostles that Jesus named and Paul. Therefore, a good explanation of the church being apostolic is to say that it was planted in the world by the apostles. It adheres to the teaching of the apostles, and it carries on the succession of the apostles. In some traditions like ours, the understanding is that our bishops fall into the line of succession of the apostles. They themselves aren't apostles, but their consecration follows in the line of, the, of, the, where, of who the apostles laid hands on in order to consecrate them as bishops. So let's connect what we've discovered about the church. The church is one holy Catholic and apostolic body. We find unity and devotion to the apostles' teaching, which today for us is studying scripture. We find unity in prayer and fellowship and breaking of bread. And we're connected to all others who are devoted to the same throughout time and space. We are set apart from the world in a radical koinonia fellowship with our shared identity in Christ. This should make the church a very different sort of body than any other organization, so much so that it blesses the world around us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we are told that the Lord added daily to the number that were being saved. This one holy Catholic and apostolic church was such a powerful community that people wanted to know more. Those outside the church were drawn to the love and devotion that was shared in the church. They found meaning and purpose together in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the example set for us by the early church. We thank you for their devotion to the essentials of life in Christ and for the quality of their koinonia community. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church that seeks to bless the world around us. Let your light shine from us to be a beacon of hope in a world that has lost meaning and purpose. Amen.